Um, I've titled this message, The Gospel Comes Home. It's part six, but I got to tell you, uh, as we close out chapter five and just lead into communion, I was, of course, looking ahead for you. I will be gone next Sunday. Pastor Andy Woodfield will be in the pulpit. We're excited for that. I will be down south at a board meeting for the Master's University and Seminary. I have the privilege to go to the men's conference with those of you men who are going. So that's wonderful. Then the board meeting. But would you pray for me? I will be opening God's Word to the Master's University this week. And I am excited on that. I've, I've been given the subject of the assurance of salvation. I will be well over to a thousand students. But just pray for me. That's this Wednesday. And uh, we're excited. In fact, I got a, a, a note this week as a board member that Masters University is on a soft. Um, uh, there's so many students coming these last two years. They're on a trying to look at the word. It's a, it's a, a, a soft closure because we think the university will just be stuffed within the next year and, or two. And so I, I look at it to go down there. We have a number of students from our church that are there. And uh, we have 19 students at the Master Seminary here. And so just pray that God would give us great grace and wisdom. But as I looked ahead in my preaching uh, we'll finish up on 5.33, but, you know, I'm always weeks ahead. We'll be addressing the subject of children in, on October 9th. Then I will be addressing the subject of parents and their responsibility to the children's command on the 16th. And then on the 23rd, we'll wrap this short series up on the responsibility of fathers. So I would say bring someone with you. This will be certainly the, the, the most that the Word of God gives us in, in this, in all of the New Testament, and certainly for me, in exposition with you. You do not want to miss the responsibility of children, the responsibility of parents, which is in the white spaces of those verse, verses, and then the responsibilities I'm going to call it of fathers in 6-4 to not promote your, provoke your children. So this is going to be a key time for us as I get back. So pray for me Wednesday, pray for our men that will be away on Friday and Saturday, and then uh, we will turn the corner and come back to that. Well, listen, open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 5. I probably could have tucked this in last week, but I, I left it as it is for today, and I hope this is profitable for you. It's just a final statement that Paul gives after he says in 531, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his, uh, to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The mystery, he says, is profound. It's, it's great. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And then he says this, however, let each of you love his, his wife as himself and let the wife see to it that she respects her husband. 
Let's bow in a word of prayer and turn our attention to the word of God and the elements that will be passed at the conclusion. Father, as we look here to the word of God, would you be our teacher? Would you instruct us? Would you grant us the wisdom that comes from above? Would it be that the Holy Spirit tunes our heart to see this? Would you be pleased right now in this service? There's people who don't have a living, breathing understanding and personal relationship with Christ. And so, Father, for your sake and your glory and your honor, their salvation, would you open their hearts through the teaching of the Word of God. We'll ask this in your name. Amen. You know, being a pastor, as long as I have, I mean, the wedding ceremony is a a marvelous day. I was trying to look back and think how many weddings I have done, and I didn't keep as close record in my early years, but it's certainly hundreds of them, and I'm grateful for each of them. Those days are filled with joy. They are filled with excitement. They are filled with just a celebratory joy that accompanies a day like that. Family is there, friends are there, there's flowers all over the place. You've got the bride, you have her dress, you have the groom, you have the the groomsmen, the, the ladies that are on the stage supporting their friend or family member and all the expectations, all the hopes, all the dreams, such a wonderful, wonderful day. In fact, I always think I have one of the greatest seats in the house that day. I get to stand here usually before this place, see the bride coming down the aisle with her father. I usually look at the groomsmen next, you know, the groom next to her, you know, me on my left. And I mean, it's an electrifying joy. And especially when it's two believers, because then you realize that this day pleases the Lord. But when you go all the way back to the garden, I mean, it was God himself who gave away the first bride, Eve, and it was God himself who performed the first wedding ceremony ever. And he blessed it, and he told him to be fruitful and to multiply. And if this is true, and it is, Then the question I begin with this morning is, why do marriages, not in all accounts, but why do so many go wrong? Why amongst us, whether it be in the community in which we live or even the life of the church, divorce is rampant and marriage at times, even though I've been preaching on it, is a struggle. I mean, why even within the fabric of the society is there rebellion against this God-ordained institution of marriage? And I think these questions can be answered in just one word. And you might wonder what that word is. It just popped into my mind. There might be another word, but I would say fall. Because of the fall, because of the presence of sin. At the moment in Genesis chapter 3, when sin came into this world, everything began to unravel in the garden. 
everything changed when sin entered into the world. In fact, God's intended blessing for marriage, look over at the book of Genesis. I'll start there even this morning outside of Ephesians. But look over in the book of Genesis. Here was his intention when they were in the garden pre-fall. It says in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27 that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food. And so it was, and God saw that he everything that he had made and behold I love this line it was very good and it says and there was evening and there was morning it says the sixth day I mean everything was perfect in the garden in fact you look over at chapter 2 in the book of Genesis in, in verse 18 the Lord God said he goes into a fuller description it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And so he creates Eve, if you will, from Adam's side. And man was given leadership in the garden. He was given headship pre-fall. He named all the animals. And then he had the privilege to, to name Eve. And then he was instructed at the end, as we saw last week, to leave and to cleave. And so if you just stop there just for a moment, man stood above or between, excuse me, between God above and the animals below as God's ruling representative. Adam and Eve were co-regents ruling together and they were exhorted, as it said, to fill the earth. He was created, man was, as royalty in God's world, male and female alike, bearing the divine glory equally. Oh, but everything changed, didn't it, when sin entered into the world? Sin enters in chapter 3, and the marriage relationship, it enters into that because it became subjected to a curse, in other words, it all changed. Man, by the sweat of his brow, onto the belly would the serpent go. And then zero in on chapter 3, verse 16. There's a hint there of something else that changed in the dynamic. It says in Genesis 3.16, he's giving a description to the woman and the consequence of the fall. It says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing... And in pain, you shall bring forth children. And now this, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. 
Now, I want you just to stop there for a second that it begins to give us an insight into the battle, into the struggle. It's interesting. I was reading the ESV to you, and you'll note that I said there in 16, your desire shall be for your husband. It's interesting. When you look on the screen, I had them put it in the ESV as well. But you'll notice that they changed it a little bit, which is fine. You shall bring forth children and your desire doesn't say anything in the old translation 2011 on this pulpit, but in the 2016, your desire, speaking to Eve, shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. This is fascinating. What is the woman's desire and what does it mean that he should rule over you? Now, there is disagreement amongst some scholars as to the word desire here. You say, in what way? There's a number of things that it means. I'll give you two broad categories. It speaks there of either her desire positively, or I could say, secondly, negatively. Is the woman's desire toward her husband virtuous, or is the woman's desire for her husband manipulative? Now, you could see in that translation, your desire shall be contrary to your husband. It, you shall be, it shall be against him. You say, what if it's used positively? Well, some would say that her desire is the woman's physical desire that she will continue to be for her husband even after the pain of bringing forth children into the world. Let me say it this way. Look back at 3.16. You'll see it there. It says, your desire shall be for your husband, but you'll notice that it, will, it would go right back to the previous phrase. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. And your desire will still be, though you just gave birth, still you will have a desire for your husband. In fact, that word desire is only used in three places. It's used here in 316. It's used in the Song of Solomon 710, and it's used positively. It's just the verb teshuka in the Hebrew. But in the Song of Solomon in 710, it says, I am my beloved, and his desire is for me. It means it positively in a relationship of physical intimacy. So positive, it would mean that despite the painful experience in childbirth, she will still have a physical desire for her husband. That is a possible interpretation. I don't want to be over dogmatic here. But there's another meaning, and I think the other meaning is likely. That word desire, teshuka, is the idea of to compel or to impel, or to urge, or even the thought of seeking control. And it's used negatively. And you could see that. I just saw that this morning. The desire shall be contrary to 
your husband, okay? So that's the other thought, is it's used negatively that as a consequence of the fall, the woman who once lived in perfect freedom and submission to God, the man was still the head in pre-fall days, but now as she sins, she not only gives pain in childbirth, but here she's going to have a contrary desire against him. Susan Foe, in her article many years back, gave the conclusion that the desire here is a contention for leadership. It's a negative usage. She said it seems probable in Genesis 3.16. Now, what's fascinating about this, and I am moving somewhere, is that the third time that this word is used is only one other time. And it's used 15 verses later, and maybe it's on your same page. Look over to Genesis chapter 4 to back up the negative meaning here. Do you remember when it says in 4-5 for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Remember Abel offered one, he accepted it. Verse 5, Cain offered one and he had no regard. So Cain in 4-5 was very angry and his face fell and the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, you will not, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin, watch this, is crouching at the door. And there's the phrase, its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Now, what's fascinating here is that word for desire in 4-7 is the same word in the same grammatical structure in the same identical form as the word in 3-16. So whatever it means in 4-7, I think it would also look back to 3-16 because it's in the same context separated by 15 verses. And so here, this desire for Cain is contrary to him. But you, God says, must master it. That sin is crouching at the door, but you must rule over it. In other words, sin's desire is to enslave Cain and control him. But the Lord commands Cain to master that desire. Sin is like a crouching beast. It's ready to pounce on you, Cain, but you must rule over it. And the thought here would be is just as sin's desire is to have its way with Cain, and as a consequence of the fall, now the woman who once lived in perfect submission is and usurped his role at the fall and his headship, now in temptation is her desire to take leadership in the home from her husband. In other words, she's going to battle a contrary desire. So if you look back at 3.16, you could read it this way. To the woman, he said, your desire will be to control your husband. Now you see it that way? But you will, the husband, he will rule over you. And this, I think, is a fair interpretation. I'll say something in a moment on that. The Net Bible says it this way in the Net Bible. You will want to control your husband, but he 
Here's how it says, will dominate you. That's what it says. Boyce, the commentator, the man of God said, as a result of the fall, sin has resentment rising within your own heart. And he said, you must master that. In other words, it is, it is something that you've got to overcome. He said, here's what Boyce said. He said, he said, sin has corrupted both the willing submission of the wife and the loving, hus- loving headship of the husband. The woman's desire is to control her husband, to usurp his divinely appointed headship, and he must master her, Boyce said, if he can. So the rule of love founded in paradise is replaced by a struggle, by tyranny, and by domination. So here's a very, you say, what, what happens in marriage? How come it starts so well and then you, you run into issues? I think it's a consequence of the fall. In 3.16, you could read it this way. The wife will want to control and usurp her husband's leadership, but he will now rule over her. Now, it's interesting, and by the way, this doesn't exonerate men. If you look at 3.16, where it says, but he will rule over you, I think it's interesting. That word there in 3.16 for rule is not the same word in Genesis 1.28. Look back over there. We read it earlier where it's, he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And here I'm reading, it says, and subdue it and have dominance over the fish. He changes the word here in 3.16 because I think it represents a new despotic kind of authoritarianism that was not in God's original plan for a man's husband. So to the wife, the consequence of the fall will result not only in pain in childbirth, but also if not filled by the Spirit in an ungodly desire to control or to usurp her husband. A husband then, rather than loving leadership, will now rule over her in an ungodly dominion. This is where the problems lie. MacArthur said it this way, with the fall and its curse came the distortion of women's proper submission and of a man's proper authority. That is where, he said, the battle of the sexes began, where women's liberation and male chauvinism came into existence. Women have a sinful inclination to usurp the man's authority and men have a sinful inclination to put the woman under his or their feet. This is where the battle comes. In fact, the wife's intelligent and willing submission is replaced by usurpation and a contrary desire, and a husband's loving and gentle leadership is replaced either by his domination or his passivity. And so you say, is there hope? 
And I would say, absolutely, there's hope. Go back to Ephesians chapter 5. I mean, the hope, beloved, is bound up in the gospel. The hope is bound up in the gospel that's been unfolded in the book of Ephesians. It's bound up in becoming a new man and a new creature and to be born again and to get a new heart and then to walk in the spirit, okay? And so you find here a reversal of the curse, I would say both in male and female relationships, So what I do is I want to bring you now, what I will do is bring you to a summary statement in Paul's teaching. He gives a final word to the husband. It's not very difficult to understand. And then he gives a final word to the wife. Now, as I hit this final word to you men and a final word to the wife, you understand this is impossible apart from salvation. This is impossible apart from the Spirit of God. This is impossible apart from 521 on mutual submission. But I do want you to know that whatever was bound and came to both men and women in the curse can be reversed in Christ. And so I want to give you hope today. I want, I want to help you understand why is there issues. And I could just put it this way. Because men, you're going to tend to dominate you're going to tend to either dominate or be passive. Wives, you might be tended, tend to not trust him, to not trust his leadership. You might even be tempted to control certain areas of the relationship. And rather than you getting underneath your man and respecting him, and if a man loses sight of his calling, he will seek to put the wife in her place. And so loving submission is submarined, if you will, by an authoritative dominance and force that was never there in the original garden. And I would say a wife's intelligent, loving submission now has fallen in the fall. And apart from the Spirit of God, she's got to learn to trust her husband who is the leader. So let me just give you a final word to you men and then a final word to you wives. And here is the wonderful hope of the gospel. You could say that paradise lost in Adam is paradise restored in Christ. And so he gives us the joy. He gives you the opportunity to be that man you need to be. In fact, I want to give you hope this morning. I don't know if you've been married one year or five years or 15 years or 40 years. If God's word is going to address this, then he wants you to change today. If you don't know Christ, this is impossible to fulfill this. If you don't know Christ, it's impossible to reverse the teaching that's bound up in the curse apart from the gospel and you need to fall on your knees and come to a living relationship with Jesus Christ. So look what he says in 533. He says, however, here's the word to the husband, let each of you love his wife as himself. Now you'll note I'm reading in 533, however, the ideal is so be it. And you say, however, to what end? Well, if you go back in 32, he's talking about the mystery being so great and so profound. But Paul says, I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. 
You remember that's how we finished last week, the wonderful mystery that was previously unknown that became revealed that Christ came to not only the Jewish people, but to the Gentile people in Ephesians 3, 1 through 6. And so he comes back and he finishes the paragraph and he just says, however, here, okay, men, husbands, love your wives. He says it a couple times. He says it in 25. He says it in verse 28. That is the one overarching command. If you're a single man, this is your one overarching command in your singleness until the Lord would bring you to this type of woman. You're to love your wife. The model, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself up for the church. He sanctifies the church. He does that through the word of God. The husband is put into the wife's, uh, into that relationship so that he can lead her, so that he can love her, that he can give her a servant leadership as modeled in the person of Christ who was ever bringing the church to purity, to present her, if you will, externally without spot or wrinkle, to present her internally as holy uh, without blemish or stain. The ideal is a purity there. A husband, and we've said this in the last weeks, is to love his own wife as he loves his own body. Just as you men, axiomatic principle, would take care of yourself, you are to love that your wife, you are to nourish her, you are to cherish her, you are to feed her is the word for nourish, you are to cherish her, you are to create a safe, warm spot. I mentioned that that word was used in Deuteronomy 26 of a mother bird sitting on the nest with her chicks below her. This is what a husband does. He doesn't throw his wife out to a harsh, cruel world. No, he's made a commitment to God. He's loving her. He's sacrificially loving her, just like Jesus did for the church. But he doesn't just die for the church as Jesus did. Jesus also died for the church that he might sanctify her. So this husband is bringing his wife to the word of God. He's helping her think on the word of God. He's lovingly in, in humility, serving her and coming to her that she might be a glorious bride that he made his vows to, that one day as Christ presents the church to, his, to, to himself, he says, this husband is preparing her for that. And you say, why, would, why did Christ do that? Well, it said that we're members of his body, members of of his body. In other words, Jesus did everything for the church. You understand the model there because the, the body is his body. In fact, the phrase literally, there's different metaphors as you know, but one of them for the church is we're called the body of Christ. And just as Jesus laid down his life to accomplish everything for his body, a husband in a one flesh relationship is, if you will, laying down himself to meet her needs because they're one flesh. Just like the church is one, a husband and wife in that divine mathematics become one flesh together is the thought. In fact, just to encourage you men, contrary to how many men think, servant leadership does not destroy your headship and the role of the husband. Rather, it is the only way to restore headship the way that God intended it. So you're going you're gonna to find it welling up within you when something doesn't go wrong as a husband. 
And you have one mandate, to love your wife, to serve her, to sacrificially lay your life down for her. I suppose the best way that needs to take place is you need to die to yourself. And it's demonstrated, if you will, in a humble love, not by anger, not by an abusive show of authority, not by a loud voice, but you being like the Lord Jesus Christ in that home. I think months ago, I read something to you by an unknown author, and uh, I thought it was okay to re-engage it with you. And the idea is to die to self. Here's your role, men. Husbands, see to it that you love your wife. Die to self. But here's what this one author said, when you are forgotten or neglected or purposely set aside and you sting and hurt with the insult or oversight, but your heart is happy and you come, you count it a privilege to suffer for Christ, that is dying to self. When your good is evil spoken of, when she misunderstands you, when your desires are not interesting to her, uh, it says when your advice is disregarded, your opinions ridiculed, when you are mistreated and refuse to let anger rise in your heart or even defend yourself, that is dying to self. When you lovingly and patiently bear any disruption, any irregularity, any annoyance, when you can stand face to face with folly, waste, extravagance, insensitivity, and endure it as Jesus endured it, that is dying to self. When you are content with any food, any clothes, any climate, any society, any interruption, or any solitude, that is dying to self. When you never refer to yourself in a conversation or recite your good works or to pursue a commendation, when you can truly love and be unrecognized for something good, that is dying to self. And men, when you can receive correction and reproof from your wife and humbly submit inwardly as well as outwardly and feel no rebellion and feel no resentment rising within your heart, that is dying to self. How are we doing with that? Here, here's the command. Listen, I don't, I don't think that's easy. If you're a confident man, okay, if you're a capable man, If you're a wise man, if you're a respected leader, a respected leader, then to deny yourself is a challenge, but it's our mandate, and that's what it takes to be the leader in your home. Self dies. You say, well, Scott, I don't want to be like that guy in Genesis 3.16, pre-fall, who rules and dominates and is angry and is authoritative. Listen, your model is the Lord Jesus Christ and look to him as the one who forego, you know, let go of all of his rights and came and suffered on our behalf. And so here, the husband's mandate is to love his wife, not rule his wife. The mandate is to serve his wife, not dominate his wife. Here, agape love, mentioned in 25, 28, and now 33, is the highest type of love. It is the strongest, most intimate, far-reaching, comprehensive term for love that is possible. 
That's your goal. Listen, you could reverse the curse as you come to Christ, walk in His Spirit, you manifest mutual submission, you'll be able to serve your wife. And I just remind you again, as we looked at it weeks ago, love is in the present tense here, right? It's continual. This thought of loving your wife in the scripture is a command. You're to continuously love your wife. Your love, men, is not an emotion. It is not a feeling. It is, bottom line, biblical love, an act of the will to give yourself unselfishly to meet the needs of your wife. That's Paul's final word. If you're single, you think, well, that's a high standard. It is. Be a man. (laughs) Grow up and mature if the Lord gives you that opportunity. This is what he's called us to. It it flies in the face of of our whole culture. It flies in the face of even the evangelical culture. Real love is leadership. Real love is service. Real love is humility modeled after the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's enough. Maybe that's too convicting. Let's go on. There's a final word to the wives. Look at it. Interesting. Fascinating. It says, and let the wife see that she, what does it say? Respect her husband. You would think that he would have said, let the wife see to it that she be submissive to her husband. But he doesn't. He uses a different word. He uses the word respect, and I'll, I'll talk about that in a moment. But weeks ago, I, uh, I left out, because I knew I would get to this place, 524. Go back there just for a moment, where it says in 524, as the church submits to Christ... It said, so also the wives should submit in everything to her husband. Let me just address that that I had left off. You say in everything, and I touched on this. It cannot mean absolutely everything. You know that. A husband cannot demand her. We address that to sin against scripture. So it's not unconditional obedience of the wife to her husband. Certainly a wife does not, her submission doesn't nullify the commands that we've studied in Ephesians 4. She she can't steal back in chapter 4. She's not to slander. She is not to be impure. And the husband's authority does not override the authority of Jesus Christ in verse 22, who is the Lord, okay? But, to, but when it says to everything, it simply means, wife, that no part of your life is to be outside of your relationship to your husband. I think what Paul's getting at here is in every area of life, A wife is expected, in that thought, to submit to her husband. In other words, let me say it this way. This is a perfect world, okay? But it says, there is no limit to the wife's submission because there's to be no limit to the man's love, okay? There's no limit to a wife's submission because there's no limit to a husband's sacrifice is the thought. 
Now, you might say out here, you know, Pastor, I hear you. I hear you about a husband's love. And you would just say to me, he doesn't live that way. He just, he doesn't live that way. He doesn't live what you're talking about. In fact, you could be here single and your husband doesn't come. You might even say he's not saved. You you might say he isn't even in the, the body of Christ. He's not a holy man, far from him purifying me. He's either unsaved or claims Christ and he hasn't shown his life in the church for about 15 or 20 years. And I've met a lot of people here where that's the case. Honest to you. If you asked him if he was a Christian, he'd probably say so. But he hasn't fellowshiped in a church for 10, 15, 30 years. And you might be able to say, I'm flying solo. And he's flying solo and so am I. And my response to that is, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And, and maybe it's why Paul gives this final word. Look at it again. Look at it, it says, and let the wife see to it that she respects her husband. Now that word respect is the word phobotai, and it's the word for fear. You wives, and this final command given to you, are not only to submit to your husband, but you are to respect him. And some translation says, let it see that the wife fear her husband. Here, I, I don't think fear is the best, but these bookend, you say bookend in what way? Look back in 521, he said submitting actually to one another And he uses that phrase, same word as in 533, out of reverence for Christ. So there's one book in, and then the other one is here in verse 33, let the wife see to it that she, and it uses the word, respect her husband. And so this ideal of fear or respect or or reverence frames the paragraph. Now this fear here is not a slavish fear, but watch this. It's a fear or a respect for his position. So let me put it this way, that a wife's submission in 22, a wife's respect in 33 is her acknowledgement of the God-given role given by God to her husband, and it's a respect for the leadership that he seeks to provide for the family. So here is an appeal to the wife who is equal by creation. She's equal in redemption to both submit and to respect the authority that God has ordained over them. The husband is to love and the wife is to respect her husband. Let me put it this way. Just as the husband is to love his wife, not because she's always worthy of it, of that love, but because his love is to be like the Lord Jesus Christ who loved the church even when the church was unworthy, if you will. And likewise, the wife is to respect her husband because he has been placed in leadership by God. 
And so here's the final word. Submit, yes, to, to line up, if you will, underneath. And here you are to respect. And I think some wives, okay, have confused showing respect with feeling respect, okay? In other words, I think I'm trying to say you may not, you may not feel respect for him, but you are commanded in this text to show him respect is the thought. You show him that respect. You say, why would I do that? Because God has chosen the man to be the head of the family. And, as, and in, a, in a great world and in a great marriage, the husband is loving like the Lord Jesus Christ. The wife willingly, uh, voluntarily submits herself verse 22 and 24, to his leadership. His leadership isn't marked by abuse. It's not marked by authority. It's not marked by sinful anger. He's loving her like Jesus Christ loved the church. But here's what Sproul said. It was interesting. And I I say this to encourage your wives, such a theologian as Sproul He said, probably the most fragile mechanism in the whole creation, he said, is the male ego. And one of the most difficult things to understand is that there is probably nothing that a man wants more than his wife, than her admiration. Sproul said that. In other words, he needs to know that there's some things that he does well. Let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. And Sproul said that. He went on to say there is probably nothing more that a woman wants from her husband than his attention and treating her with dignity, okay? He said and finished the whole basis of this relationship is built on love, and respect for one another. In fact, as we summarize, there's the charge. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husband. And in this, as you walk in the Spirit, God will bless your relationship. He will bless your marriage. Whatever was lost in the garden will be restored in Christ through his death on the cross and through the power of the spirit of God and by the word of God to be all that you need to be. But you must, beloved, be spirit-filled. You say, well, how do I know if I'm spirit-filled? Well, you're gonna, you're gonna submit to one another. That's 521. You're gonna give thanks always and you're gonna sing, at least in this text, You're going to sing and make melody in your heart to the Lord. You're going to give thanks, and you're going to be mutually submissive to one another. Listen, the Lord Jesus Christ is our model for all these things. But listen, I want to encourage you. This is is a reality even for marriage today. This is how he wants to bless us. This is how you men need to conduct yourself. Wives, this is how you must be able to relate to your husband in this fashion. 
So there's two pillars here. One is love for the husband, agape love, and the other is respect, not because he's always desirous of it, but because the Lord Jesus Christ made him as head of the home. And it's an appeal, I think, to the wife to support him in that endeavor. This is how a marriage works. This is the role of the wives. This is the role of the husbands. And I don't know what to tell you, but in the coming weeks, not next week, but on October 9th, I'm talking to your children. So I don't know if you want to keep them out if, if, and keep them in here, but I'm addressing the children because look at 6.1 where it says, children, it says, obey your parents. I'll be talking to our children. So to whatever degree you think they need to hear that, I will be addressing them. And then that next week, I'll address you as parents that you could actually keep your children accountable to what the Bible describes. Like, I really don't want you to miss it, okay? And then the third week, there's a, a word there. Look at 6.4 where it says, and in the ESV, it says, fathers do not provoke your children to anger. Sometimes it uses the word parents, and I'll actually tell you why I think it's best as it is here in the ESV for fathers. Listen, you don't want to miss these things. In the very harsh world in which we live, here's hope. In the very cruel world that doesn't even understand what gender is now, male and female, and we've got 177 of those listed on one university application on who you are, God's going to give a very, very clear word on what the children's responsibility is and what the parents' responsibility is to heed the instruction and then what you fathers finally are not to do, and that's provoke your children to anger. In fact, it's a play on words there. So listen, here was the sixth message. I think we've got three more, and we're going to walk. But listen, don't miss it, okay?